Well, good morning. And if you could open up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, where we read the familiar story, or at least part of it, according to Matthew, beginning in chapter 1 of verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he said, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Under your tree in the next few days will be all sorts of gifts, I bet. Brightly colored packages. A lot of things you don't need. Some things that are too small or maybe even by God's grace, some things that are too big. Makes you feel a lot better about yourself. One person honestly said, I love Christmas because I get lots of wonderful presents I can't wait to exchange. Sometimes we give gifts out of a sense of obligation, sometimes out of a sense of need, but always at this time of the year, it can get rather expensive. In fact, If you were to duplicate, I found out, the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, you're familiar with. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. Second day, two turtle doves, a partridge in a pear tree. If you were to make that happen, it would cost you 15,000 bucks. The cheapest item would be the partridge in the pear tree. That's 34.99 at the going rate. Two turtle doves, 50 bucks. According to the Philadelphia State Zoo, six geese a laying would run you about $150. Now the price goes up. You get to 11 pipers piping, it's about 1,000. 12 drummers drumming is another grand. And then the big expense is the 12 lords (laughs) a-leaping, which would run in the neighborhood conservatively of about $3,000. 
The real point of Christmas, however, is not the gifts that we give. It's the gift that God gave, His Son. That's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 9. He was referring to Jesus when he said, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, singular. The best Christmas present has already been given. It's the Son of God come down to man. It is in the very nature of God to give. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You might even say that Jesus is the gift that keeps on giving. When you receive it, you reap the rewards for a lifetime. What is unique about God's gift is that it was given to people who really didn't appreciate it. The Bible says He came to His own people, but His own received Him not. Now, I bet the gifts that you are giving this year are not given to people who don't appreciate it, but you're giving gifts to people who probably will love and appreciate it. I wonder if any of you are giving a gift to your enemies. I wonder if any of you are thinking, yeah, that thief that broke into our house six months ago, let's find where he lives. Let's give him a nice present. That neighbor who bugs me or slanders me or the people trying to run me out of business, I'd like to give them a nice Christmas present. No, we usually give gifts to family, friends, even pets. But enemies, I don't think so. That's where God is different. God gives His gift to even those who are hostile toward Him. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Makes it all the more unique. Now, the gift of God's Son has many designations, many names in the Scriptures. There are four that I'd like you to look at with me this morning. They're mentioned in this text. The four names for God's gift. The first being Christ, the second being Jesus, the third being Emmanuel, and the fourth being the King. All mentioned here. All different names from the Christmas story that answer the question, who was this man? Who was Jesus exactly? A question that has been asked for the last 2,000 years. I think it was William Shakespeare that said, a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. As if to say, names don't matter, but names do matter. They provide for us, hopefully, a fulfillment of purpose. A psychologist did an interesting study. He studied 15,000 names of juvenile delinquents. And he found that those kids who were named odd or embarrassing names were four times more likely to get into trouble than those who didn't have them. Names mean something to people. And the names for this great gift of God also mean something. And the first one we'd like to look at is the term Christ. It's mentioned a few times all the way back in verse 1 of Matthew, verse 16, verse 17, verse 18, and on into chapter 2. But look back at verse 16. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And then verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ, with an article here, are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. 
The term Christ means the anointed one, the designated one. It is not his last name. Some people think that, oh, well, there's Jesus Christ, like that's his last name, as opposed to Jesus Ginsburg or something. It wasn't his last name, and his middle initial is not H, as some people say when they want to take his name in vain. Christ means the anointed one. It is a title or a designation. It is the Greek word Christos, which comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. The root word means to rub or to smear. And it comes from a ritual wherein kings, priests, or prophets were smeared or rubbed with or even poured on with olive oil. It set them apart. It was to say, this one is special. This one has been sent out. This one has been designated. The Jews longed for a Messiah. Throughout their history, because of the prophecies, they looked forward to a coming one, a hero, a deliverer, a monarch, whom they called the Messiah. Throughout their history, they spoke and longed for this one, but right before the time that Jesus actually came, the messianic hope rose to an all-time high. I'd like to quote to you what one rabbi wrote. His name is Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver, in his writing, The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel, he said, Prior to the first century CE, or Christian era, the Messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the Second Temple, witnessed a remarkable outburst of Messianic emotionalism. When Jesus came into Galilee, spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, he was voicing the opinion universally held that the age of the kingdom of God was at hand. The Messiah, he said, was expected around the second quarter of the first century CE. He was the Christ. One of the reasons for this hope that the Messiah would come was because of the oppression of the Roman government. Now, the Jews had seen foreign government after foreign government come in and oppress them. And so did the Romans. But when the Romans came in, they did something that no other government had done in their recent history. And that is they came in, occupied the land, and took away the right down in Judea to administer their own government, the government of self-rule, especially capital punishment. They took it away from them. And why that was disturbing is because there was a promise. Some of you remember Genesis 49 when a prophecy was made that said this, the scepter or the right to rule, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor shall the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And all of the rabbis, since that was given, believed that that was a reference to the Messiah. That one of the signs the Messiah would come is that this scepter or this right of self-rule would be taken away from Judah. And the Jewish Talmud says that when the Romans came in and did exactly that, that there was this parade through the streets of Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders of the Jews, 
put sackcloth and ashes on them and cried out in the streets of Jerusalem saying, The scepter has departed from Judah, but Shiloh, the Messiah, has not come. Little did they know when they were having their mournful parade through the streets of Jerusalem that outside the outskirts of Bethlehem, a baby was being born who would be taken to Nazareth and grow up and very soon would come into Jerusalem and be proclaimed as their Messiah. He was Jesus. The scepter has departed, but Shiloh had come. He was the hero, the deliverer, the anointed one. Well, that's the first term we note, the Christ. The second name for God's gift is Jesus. It's the most familiar term to us, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is, before they had an official marriage and an official union, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just or righteous man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away or divorce her secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 24, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, did not know her or have relations with her, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. This was the name he was to go by. It's the name we are familiar with. What's great is the angel gave it to him. He didn't have to think, okay, let's get the book out, a thousand and one names to call our little baby. The angel of God designated his name would be called Jesus. You should know that though the term means God is salvation and describes what he would do, it was a very common name. Jesus is the anglicized Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. That was his name, Joshua. There were probably three other Joshuas on his block. It was not an unusual name. It was a common name. A lot of kids had it, which I think is wonderful because it makes him all that more approachable. What's his name, Joshua? You know, one of the things I've noticed that we evangelicals struggle with, I think, is the humanity of Christ. We have no trouble defending the divinity of Christ. Jesus is God, we say, and he is. But the other part of that truth is he was fully human while being fully divine. And did you know that the first heresy that came into the church was not denying the deity, but rather the humanity of Jesus Christ? It was called Gnosticism. And the church had to vigorously defend the fact that though he was God, he was human in human flesh. He went through what we went through. He felt what we feel. He was Jesus. But the significance of the name is that it described his mission. The angel said to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That answers the question, why did he come? He came to save. He came to save people. He came to save people from sin. Jesus didn't come to give merchants an opportunity to make more money this time of the year. 
Jesus didn't come just so we could get a few extra days out of school or off work. Jesus didn't come just to be an example so that we'd all be better people. He came to save us from sin. That's a mouthful. To admit this, you have to admit that there are sinners. And you would have to admit that you need His salvation. He didn't come to save people from their insecurities. He didn't come to save people from their inner child. He didn't come to save people from their karma. He came to save people from their sins. Thus the name Jesus perfectly depicts that not only is He the Christ, the Anointed One, but He is anointed to save people. I was reading a little Associated Press article about a couple in England had a newborn baby girl, and they named her 139 names. She goes by Tracy. That's the first name on the list. It's the most convenient. But after Tracy, there are 138 other names. Tracy, Joy, Christine, Samantha, on and on and on. They ask, why did you do this? The father said, well, we wanted to give her something for when she grows up. I guess the option to choose any name. Talk about an identity crisis. Hey, what's your name? Hey, take your choice. So these parents name their child something for novelty's sake rather than for identity's sake, but Jesus' name was his identity. He came to save. This is what I'm about. God is salvation. That's what his name means. Now, when Jesus was brought into the temple to be dedicated and Simeon saw Joseph and Mary come in with that baby, you may remember what Simeon remarked upon. The baby came close to him and he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, I can die in peace now, God, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation is a person, not a mantra, not a belief system, but a person. Jesus is salvation. He's the one and the only one that provides it. Now, unfortunately... This is part of the Christmas story that is rarely told. The Christmas story that is told is there was a cute little baby born a long time ago on a bed of straw, and there were animals around, and people came, and we'll even hang a little angel up by a wire. That's the story. Rarely is it told that those little cute hands of that baby were destined to have a Roman spike driven through them to save people from sin. Rarely is it told that those little feet kicking in that manger were destined to walk up the dusty road to Calvary's Hill. Rarely is it told that that cute little head of that infant would one day wear a crown of thorns before he would wear a crown to rule. That's why he came. He didn't come to stay a little baby to be painted on the storefront once a year. He came to grow up to save people from sin. There is no salvation in his birth though it's the greatest miracle ever. There is no salvation in his sinless life, though he was sinless when he lived. There is only salvation when he goes to a cross and atones for sin in his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And even the wise men must have had some inclination because in chapter 2, when they finally come to Bethlehem, they give him gifts. Two are normal one is unusual. Gold, kings deserve that. Frankincense speaks of his priesthood. But myrrh is an embalming fluid. 
Mary, congratulations on the birth of your son. Here's some embalming fluid. Enjoy. Though it was a spice used for perfume, it was predictive that this child would grow up and would die. Let's go now to his third designation in our text. It's found in verse 22. It's the term Emmanuel. We sang about it. Let's discuss what it means. Verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This is a name that the prophet, that is the prophet Isaiah, 600 years before the birth of this one, said he would be called. Isaiah chapter 7, which shows us that Christmas began a long time before Christmas Day that we celebrate. It was in the mind of God forever, in eternity past. And the prophet 600 years earlier predicted it. What did he predict? He predicted that God himself would come. He predicted that God would become incarnate in a body of flesh. He would be God with us. God in human form. That little baby was God, packaged in flesh. You say, well, how how is that possible, to have baby God? How could God inhabit a human body? The answer is the virgin birth. That's why it's so important. The key is the virgin shall conceive. The prophet said, this will be a sign to you, the virgin, not a young woman. That's no sign. But a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he will be called God with us. That's what makes Jesus different. That's what sets Jesus apart from every other teacher or moral person who ever existed that said great things. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Most of us know who Larry King is, the talk show host, CNN. Larry King said that if he had the opportunity to interview Jesus Christ, the one question he would ask, is it true you are virgin born? Because, he said, that would either reinforce or change the whole world. Now, remember, Larry King is Jewish, so that would be a very important question to ask him. Is it true that you've been born of a virgin? The name Emmanuel is a description. It is a title. It is really not a proper name because we never read in the New Testament that he was actually called Emmanuel. He didn't walk down the street in Nazareth, Hey, you, Emmanuel! They called him Jesus. But Emmanuel was the designation of his purpose. He would be God with us. God incognito. God who would leave the glories of heaven, leave the prerogatives of the exercise of his deity, and become a man. Why did he do it? By the way, that has got to be the ultimate cross-cultural experience, don't you think? Some of us are going to India in a couple weeks. There will be a culture shock from America to India. It is antithetical culturally. But can you imagine leaving heaven and coming here? Why? Well, there's a story that is sort of similar to this, but we have to think on a more even infinite level than this. But it's a story from the Middle East about a great ruler, a Shah, called Shah Abbas, 
who often like to take off his royal robes of glory and put on peasant clothes and walk among the common people. Of course, this was very advantageous. He could hear what they're saying. He could get the heartbeat of the people. He could feel what they feel. He could hear what they think about his own rule. Not that Jesus needed to do that because God knows all things, but the story says that the Shah Abbas one day took off his royal robes, put on peasant clothes, and went to the lowest level of the palace. And he befriended a man who was a servant, who tended the furnace for the palace. And he sat down and he talked to him, and eventually they struck up a friendship. And the tender of the furnace even offered the Shah to share his meager lunch of bread and water. He came back the next day. They had many conversations, had an intimate friendship, but the Shah never disclosed that he was the ruler. He thought it was just another guy. One day, after they had become very close, the great ruler disclosed himself that I am your king, I am your ruler, and you have become such a close friend of mine, I will grant you any wish you ask. You name it. And the furnace tender just looked at the king and said nothing. The king said, don't you get it? I could give you a city. I could make you a ruler. I could give you great sums of wealth. What do you want? And the man responded by saying, yes, my lord, I understand. But what is this that you have done? To leave your glorious surroundings, to sit with me in this dark place, to partake of my coarse fare, and to care whether my heart is glad or sorry. Even you could give nothing more precious than this. On others you may bestow rich presents, but to me you have given yourself. It only remains to ask that you would never withdraw this gift of your friendship. God with us. God sitting with us in our dark corner. God being a part of our lives. Jesus is God spelling himself in the language that all man can understand. God with us. Now, some may be here thinking, yeah, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. That's ludicrous, though I've heard that before. I usually hear this by people who knock on my door, neatly dressed, with green Bibles in their hands, or they pedal up to my door on bicycles. And they say, well, though you say Jesus is God, Jesus himself never claimed to be God, and no one back then ever understood that he said that. That's absolutely ridiculous. On many occasions he did. He accepted worship. On one hand, he said to the devil, You shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. And then we see a few chapters later that Thomas falls down before him and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus received that worship. On another occasion, Jesus is teaching in a house, and they let down a crippled man through the hole in the roof. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. At this, the Jewish rulers get upset and they say, hey, nobody can forgive sins except only God. Jesus didn't argue with that. That was the whole point. As the story progresses, that was one of the points he was trying to make. On another occasion, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if any of you are English teachers, you think that is a very strange way to conjugate a sentence. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. You is? What? What does that mean? (laughs) That was the Old Testament formula for timelessness, right? God said to Moses, I am that I am. That was his point. 
that I am that you know about from the Old Testament? Before Abraham was ego emi in Greek, I am that I am. The Jews knew exactly what he said. They took up stones to kill him. In John chapter 5, the Pharisees sought to kill him because he was continually making himself equal with God. If Jesus was not God, he deserves an Academy Award because everybody understood that that is exactly what he was making himself over and over again. And so C.S. Lewis, the great scholar, said, you can shut him up for a fool, you could spit at him and kill him for a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being just a great human teacher. For he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Rather, he was the Christ, the anointed one, conceived by the Holy Spirit, sent to save, sent to be God with us. Fully man, experiencing what we experience, dying a man's death. Fully God, rising again from the dead. The perfect sacrifice. There's a fourth name for God's gift, and that is found in chapter 2, and that is King. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that's very important, you may want to circle that, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Why was he troubled? Because he be the king. He's the guy in charge. Now these magi who were like the Republican elite guard, they were from Iraq, by the way. They traveled all the way from that area, seeing a wonder in the sky. These were the magi, those who were once in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, those who worked with Daniel. This is the offspring of those people. They had come all the way because they had heard a king was born. So they asked the question, where's the king of the Jews? That's what he was designated. If you follow on, Herod is troubled and he asked the rabbis that work for him, what about this king? What does the scripture say about the Messiah, this coming ruler? And so they quote to him Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is found in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, in quotes, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, or a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew it. It was not new news. A king is coming. They knew it. A king is coming. That's the Messiah. Isaiah, in his ninth chapter, said these familiar words. You probably have them on some of your Christmas cards. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. That's kingship. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Where's the king born? Even though Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, said, my kingdom is not of this world, that was then. He's coming again, and when he comes the second time, he will rule literally, geopolitically rule. 
over every kingdom, every government, all over the world. He will be the king of kings and every knee shall bow and tongue shall confess. That's what we look forward to. Not just looking back to the fact that he did something, but the fact that he's coming again to rule and to reign forever. Now, it seems that they knew this ruler was coming. They anticipated it. The Magi came. And I found out something that I never knew before this week. Not only did the Jews expect a Messiah to come around this time, other kingdoms in the known world of that era expected a ruler to arise out of Judah, a king. Virgil, in his writings, the Roman poet, often spoke about the coming age of Rome, the golden age of Rome they all hoped for. Well, one Roman historian named Suetonius, speaking around the time of Christ, said, quote, There has spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. And the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, quote, There was a firm persuasion that at that very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal kingdom. Close quote. Even the Jewish historian Josephus said the Jews and the people around them expected someone from the area of Judea, from Israel, to arise and become an international ruler. And one day Christ will come again and he will be. Who's the child that's born? The anointed one, the hero. He's the savior coming the first time to save people from their sins. He's God in human flesh coming the second time to rule the earth. What a gift. That's God's gift. That's the greatest gift. But you know, a gift given is only half. The gift must be received. What would it be if you gave this Christmas a gift to somebody in a package and they never opened it? Thank you, they said, and they just put it aside, never opened to see what's in it, never used what you gave them. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. How can you receive God's gift? By looking at those four names and applying them. As Christ, let him be your hero. Let him be your role model. As Jesus, let him save you from your sin. Have you done that? Have you asked him to be your savior? Have you turned in repentance to Jesus Christ? How can you really celebrate Christmas unless he's your savior? Third, as Emmanuel, God with us, let him be present in every corner of your life. Let him be present in your marriage, in your relationships, in your business, as you prepare your income tax this year. Let him be present. Fourth, as king, let him rule over your life completely. Let him call the shots and be obedient to his rulership. You might say, well, Skip, what you're calling for is an absolute, total commitment to Jesus Christ. You got it. It's exactly what I'm calling for. It's what he calls for. That's who he is. And think for a moment what it cost God to become flesh, to come as the Son It cost him everything. I want to close with this story. It was only five days before Christmas. The spirit of the season hadn't yet caught up with me, even though cars packed the parking lot of our Houston area Target shopping center. 
Inside the store, it was worse. Shopping carts and last-minute shoppers jammed the aisles. Why did I come today, I wondered. My feet ached almost as much as my head. My list contained names of several people who claimed they wanted nothing, but I knew their feelings would be hurt if I didn't get them anything. Buying for someone who had everything and deploring the high cost of items, I considered gift buying anything but fun. Hurriedly, I filled my shopping cart with last-minute items and proceeded to the long checkout lines. I picked the shortest, but it looked like it would mean at least a 20-minute wait. In front of me, there were two small children, a boy of about 10 and a younger girl of about 5. The boy wore a ragged coat. Enormously large, tattered tennis shoes jutted far out in front of his much-too-short jeans. He clutched several crumpled dollar bills in his grimy hands. The girl's clothing resembled her brother's. Her head was a matted mess of curly hair. Reminders of an evening meal showed up on her small face. She carried a beautiful pair of shiny gold house slippers. As the Christmas music sounded in the store's stereo system, the girl hummed along, off-key but happily. When we finally approached the checkout register, the girl carefully placed the shoes on the counter. She treated them as if they were a treasure. The clerk rang up the bill. That will be $6.09, she said. The boy laid his crumpled dollars atop the stand. He finally came up with $3.12. Well, I guess we'll have to put them back, he bravely said. We will come back some other time, maybe tomorrow. With that statement, a soft sob broke out from the little girl. But Jesus would have loved those shoes, she cried. Well, we'll go home and work some more. Don't cry. We'll come back, he said. Quickly, I handed $3 to the cashier. These children had waited in line for a long, long time. After all, it was Christmas. Suddenly, a pair of arms came around me, and a small voice said, Thank you, sir. What did you mean when you said Jesus would like the shoes? I asked. The small boy answered, Our mommy is sick and going to heaven. Daddy said that she might go before Christmas to be with Jesus. And then the girl spoke. My Sunday school teacher said the streets in heaven are shiny gold, just like those shoes. Won't mommy be beautiful walking on those streets to match those shoes? My eyes flooded as I looked into her tear-streaked face. Yes, I answered, I'm sure she will. Silently, I thank God for using those children to remind me of the true spirit of giving. Imagine those little kids giving absolutely everything they could, every piece of money they could scrounge to make sure mommy had gold shoes to walk on the streets of heaven. And as emotional as that is, think infinitely higher what it costs the father to send his son into this world to make sure you and I could walk the streets of heaven with him. God's indescribable gift. Have you received it? Have you really? Are you surrendered to His purpose in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your indescribable gift. So infinite. So amazing. Though we talk about it and sing about it, remark on it Sunday after Sunday, and especially at this time of the year, it still is beyond the limit of beyond our scope, to comprehend it fully. 
And so we say it is true. God loved this world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would never perish but would have everlasting life. Lord, in the days ahead, I pray that it would be Your gift that is thought about more than our gift. Thank You. And we ask, Lord, that those that don't know You yet who have gathered here today would make a decision to abandon their lives absolutely to the Lordship, the rulership, and the salvation that comes through this Son, this One, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, King, Lord. Amen. As we sing this last song...